Everything's going to be all right. Well, it's a little crazy around here today, but it's all going to be okay. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, October 14th. 14th, 2016. This is episode 434. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. I'm coming to you from the Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. At the controls is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. Thank goodness we've got John around. And joining me from Studio C back in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. Hey, John. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. This week, this week we welcome Dr. Bill Bonfleth. Uh, we're going to have an interesting discussion today, going through a bunch of different indoor air quality issues, starting with the ASHRAE IAQ 2016 conference, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, ultraviolet uh, on coils, and then we'll talk a little more about some other association-related issues. But before we do, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com. If you haven't signed up for the conference next week, the IEQ Mold and Disaster Restoration Conference is October 2021 at Seven Springs Resort in Pennsylvania. We've got a tremendous list of speakers, so go online and uh, sign up and hope to see you next week. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 14, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio Trivia Question. Name the bone-strengthening vitamin in humans and other vertebrates that ultraviolet light is responsible for forming. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. Okay, today's guest is uh, Bill Bonfleth. Dr. Bonfleth is a professor and director of the Indoor Environment Center in the Department of Architectural Engineering at Pennsylvania State University at University Park. He has a doctorate in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and is a registered professional engineer. He's got more than 30 years of experience as a consulting engineer, researcher, and educator. He has also been a member of ASHRAE since 1981, and in addition to being the past president, a past president, he's an ASHRAE fellow and distinguished lecturer. He also joined us a little over a year ago now. I guess it was like July of last year. We had uh, Bill on to talk about. Uh, in that On that show, we talked a good bit about the association changes and the Indoor Air Quality Association in ASHRAE. We've got some music.
All right. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. As a pit guy, I didn't know how that came out, you know? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Sounds very familiar, does it? Great to have you back. Glad to be back. I do want to add one thing to the uh, to the resume. I'm I'm proud now to be one of the newest members of IAQA. I I joined this year. Good, good to have you. We we um we're really looking forward to getting more of the ASHRAE folks involved with uh, the Indoor Air Quality Association. Let's first though before we get into that, let's let's go back to your recent. Um, the ASHRAE IAQ conference that was, I guess, a little less than a month ago now, um, down in the D.C. area. Tell us a little bit about what that conference, you know, how it started and um, how many years you've been doing it and then uh, how it went. Sure. So the uh, ASHRAE IAQ conference was held in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, September 12 to 14, so about a month ago. And that's a conference that ASHRAE started... uh, uh, presenting every three years back in 1986. It was one of the the main duties of the Environmental Health Committee, which was formed at that time, and uh, it coincided with the ASHRAE's becoming more uh, actively involved in trying to bring in expertise in environmental health to inform uh, itself about how uh, HVAC design affects the, the health of occupants in buildings and the uh, IAQ conference was uh, formed to create a dialogue amongst those people from outside of the what has been the ASHRAE community and the, the engineers who are the main uh, ASHRAE members to start to develop better standards. And so we've continued that for now about 30 years. And uh, this year we also uh, held uh, concurrently the uh, AIBC uh, annual meeting. AIBC is the uh, Air Infiltration and Ventilation Center, uh, an organization with related um, interests. So uh, that was uh, the the history of it. Um, Our theme this year was defining uh, indoor air quality uh, policy standards and and best practices. And we, we proposed that theme because there seemed to be so many uh, scientific uh, IAQ conferences uh, around that that uh, mainly present the, the latest work from researchers, and we felt that in in that discussion, ASHRAE maybe didn't have uh, a lot to add to uh, all of the opportunities that were already there. So we thought we'd focus on the issue of how you take research and get it into practice, and it actually turned out to be a very interesting focused discussion we had. It was a small conference. We had uh, 174 participants, but they represented 21 countries, and we had uh, 53 papers presented and 71 presentations, and the papers are now available from ASHRAE if anyone is interested in in getting a hold of those. So uh, that's a a thumbnail sketch of what it was, and maybe I'll I'll ask if you uh, want to take the discussion in any particular direction at this point. Yeah, I'm curious with respect to the government um, and, and how government gets involved with indoor air quality. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts as far as like what direction, you know, after this conference, you've talked to a lot of government people, you're a past president of ASHRAE, we're trying to get research into practice. What, what do you see as the, the government's role in the future of indoor air quality issues? Uh, yeah, sure. That's a, a very important question, uh, and and we're we're starting to address it uh, on the ASHRAE side. I was the chair of Government Activities Committee last year, and and we identified uh, indoor air quality as as one of our public policy priorities. And so we've got our staff in in uh, the Washington office now working on that. So there there's there are two main ways I think that the that the government can benefit us in, in the IAQ area. One uh, is is by uh, establishing uniform standards that are science-based, and then the other is to uh, serve as a major source of funding to do the research that's needed to develop the, the fundamental research and also, I think, the, the translational research that's needed. One, one of my observations personally is that I, I think we've got uh, a large untapped uh, body of, of 
pretty fundamental research now that is not making it into our standards because we haven't taken the additional step to conduct more research to see how you can actually practically apply a lot of these things that uh, we've learned in the laboratory and in the field over 20 or 30 or 40 years. So when you say government standards, I, I don't, maybe I misunderstood the, the development of the standards. They, they really aren't developing standards so much as, you know, ASHRAE develops standards. Um, but the government does produce, I guess, guidelines and publications. Do you see them maybe getting more involved in standard development? Uh, well, I think the analogy would be to what uh, the relationship is between ASHRAE and the Department of Energy in the U.S. for energy standards. There's, there's no doubt that the influence uh, and the quality of ASHRAE Standard 90.1 for whole building energy uh, conservation has benefited tremendously from it having been identified as the, you know, the, the code basis for the entire country. So the DOE says that state energy code should should meet or exceed uh, standard 90.1. Uh, it would not be uh, harmful to establish some uh, national criteria for minimum IAQ standards that then got uh, government resources behind deciding what those should be. I, I certainly don't favor a top-down uh, approach where some government agency writes a standard and then pushes it out, but I think that, that government agencies like EPA have a, uh, an important uh, positive role to play in coordinating and facilitating to get uh, industry consensus standards. And with respect to, you know, we, you mentioned EPA and they do have some role in indoor air quality, as I understand it, because their their main focus is outdoor air quality. They and they really don't have any. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. They don't really have any. Um, uh, I don't know how to. They can't do a whole lot about indoor air quality with respect to you know fines and and things of that nature. But but they can't help guide us to doing a better job on indoor air quality. Um, and they, they have quite a few documents like the moisture control guide, and they've got a lot of indoor air quality guidance documents. What other, you mentioned one, what other government agencies um, also get involved with indoor air quality and may well have participated in the conference? I know DOE, to some degree, because of, like you mentioned, their, their energy uh, work gets involved with indoor air quality. What other groups that you're aware of get involved with indoor air quality issues? You know, it's it's uh, very interesting how far uh, the tentacles of IAQ reach into other government agencies. I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Federal Interagency Committee on uh, Indoor Air Quality, uh, but that's a you know group that is a, has the acronym CIAQ, and then you can find them on the on the EPA website. Uh, they have 19 or 20 different agencies that participate in that for the purpose of coordinating their uh, their research and standards activities, and it's really any government agency that deals with facilities in, in some uh, way. I, I've got the list in front of me, and I'll just pick a few out of here. Uh, Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, Department of Energy, General Services Administration, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Housing and Urban Development, Department of the Interior, uh, NIOSH, um, OSHA, uh, Department of State. So it's really quite an extensive list of organizations that to some extent have to deal with facilities and with requirements for facilities. So there's uh, a potential there if you get all of those coordinated to really make some progress. I think that's a great point. We we have talked a little about the the CIAQ here on on the show, from time to time. We've had um, I can't remember the gentleman's name who coordinates those meetings. I think they just had one earlier this week. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they meet. The, maybe it's quarterly. I'm forgetting exactly, but I occasionally sit in on their meetings, and anyone can do that. They're they're broadcast too. And they're in out of D.C. They have the meetings. Out of D.C., yeah, so they have a lot. You can attend the meeting in person or you can, can get a, a connection to it. So if you go to the EPA website, you can search for them and find how to do that. And they have a mailing list as well that announces their meetings. 
Did, did you get any idea from the conference where where the government focus is with respect? You know, there's so many different types of indoor air quality issues. Where's their biggest focus right now? Uh, sure. Well, I, you know, I would would say uh, the sorts of things that the government has been concerned about and been effective uh, in dealing with have been uh, hazardous sources. You know, I think uh, uh, getting carcinogens out of buildings has been something that has been uh, something that they've done well. So identifying building materials and other things that may wind up inside of buildings that, that are harmful to the occupants and, and prohibiting or, or regulating them is, is something that they've done. Um, as far as broader holistic uh, standards for indoor air quality, I think that's the direction that many would like to move. But uh, going back to the theme of the conference, we, we had some very interesting discussions about how you do it. And and the key thing is that if you're going to move from simply a prescriptive uh, ventilation-based approach, ventilation and a little particulate filtration, which is, is basically what ASHRAE 62.1 and 62.2 give you, to something that's based on, on health or productivity of occupants, you need metrics to be able to do that. And I think there was, was a broad consensus amongst the participants in that meeting that we aren't where we need to be yet in terms of knowing what it is that we need to measure and control in indoor environments to have uh, practical performance standards. So that was, to me, was the highest priority that emerged from the conference was that we need a, uh, a broad focus, or I should say a broad coalition to develop a focus on on how we uh, define indoor air quality in those terms. There was a discussion that uh, looked at uh, putting together a, uh, a environmental pollutant list that was very preliminary, and we, we discussed several other ways of approaching it. But that, I think, was the main concern, was that uh, we haven't actually settled on a definition that everyone can agree upon and enforce. And that's going to take more research and, and more, uh, you know, more guidance, I guess, on, on what what we need research on. I, I, I don't know why this comes to mind, but I saw this, um, I don't know if it was on, it was on the news somewhere, and I, I picked up, and there was a woman out in um, Portland, Oregon area, and she studied um, moss, basically, and, you know, stuff growing on trees, and, and they were looking at that because it absorbs a lot of the things that are in the air and they were looking at it and they were able to find that in certain areas they had higher levels of, I think it was cadmium and nickel. And then they were able to track it back to the fact that there were a couple of glass plants close by. Then they were able to work with the DEP, uh, the, the state DEP with the glass plant. And, and it was a nice, interesting, uh, it was an interesting example of how, you know, business and government can work together the the businesses cut back on they figured out it was coming from the when they were um, somehow was the smelting or something of the of the glass they were getting those emissions they were able to cut it back and they, they were able to find that you know working together they could make it work and, and they could reduce those levels in the air and uh, I just thought it was fascinating the way it went from somebody studying moss on trees you know and then they they were able to pick up the the contaminants that uh, people were being exposed to by studying what the moss was absorbing, and then they were able to get the government and the business to work together to try and cut back on that exposure. I don't know why I brought that up during this segment, Bill, but it just kind of gave me a, you know, when you're talking about working together with the government, I just thought that seemed like a really good example of how it can work and, and can be very helpful. My, my well, I, I think that, you know, that there's, there's a maybe a parable there, you know, that we're out, we're out looking at, we're concerned about the health of moss, and it turns out there's something that affects people in buildings. And and, and this is, is one of the things that I'd like to see change a little, perhaps, is that we, we take uh, a fairly reactive uh, approach to uh, IAQ, uh, I think. You know, we 
something's not a problem until uh, we start seeing negative consequences, and then we try to figure out what it is. And, and perhaps it's possible to take a, a more proactive uh, approach to finding out what's in buildings and what, what the health effects are and, and implementing that before we actually have a big problem to, to solve. I have a former student who works for NIOSH who's been out uh, doing site visits to coffee roasting plants for the better part of the year because they discovered a, a chemical there that I think is also associated with microwave popcorn that, that's harmful to the occupants. And I assume that that's been in the air in coffee roasting plants as long as they've been roasting coffee. But it, it took until very recently that someone actually tested for it and found it there and realized that something needed to be done. It's it's. And by the way, I would add on to that that I think that uh, there is some history of, of uh, government outdoor environment activities uh, helping to protect the indoors, like the Superfund amendments and uh, other acts that have, have looked at the effect of uh, environmental pollution on indoor air quality. I think that's what they went back to. I mean, I typically think of the what six or seven components that are that are tested uh with the national ambient air quality standards but i guess there are other and i didn't know superfund is probably a good good example of other regulations that would cover things like that cadmium and the nickel and and things that um you wouldn't normally be testing for in outdoor air right right and by the way one of our uh, listeners mentioned it was phil jalbert that uh was on the show about the ciaq thanks steve much appreciated hey oh yeah Phil's a great. He was a, he was an interesting guy, and he does a good job of uh, handling those meetings. If anybody gets a chance, the CIAQ is a good group to to listen in on from time to time. I, I want to ask one more question about the conference before we move on to some of your presentations. I noticed in the um, in the marketing that came out, it said that you know they mentioned all these folks, the policymakers, the building owners, the operators, and and all that would be there: IAQ professionals, commissioning agents, architects and other interested participants and that you were going to talk about what works and really and what really doesn't work when tackling major improvements in indoor air quality i'm wondering if um, you could tell listeners a little bit with respect to uh, a couple examples of things that were discussed that work and things that don't work when it comes to indoor air quality yeah i've been been thinking about that a little bit and there's of course a lot of material uh, presented at the, the conference so I'll try to, to, to mention a, a couple of things. Of course, it's just generically, go, going back to, to source control, that uh, uh, approaches that remove sources of contaminants tend to be much more effective than, than approaches that uh, uh, try to deal with them when they're already in the environment. So for things like uh, allergens, for example, it was... It was cited by one of our uh, keynote speakers, uh, Dave Jacobs, uh, National Healthy Home uh, Group, that uh, investments in, in improving the indoor environment to reduce exposure to, to uh, asthma triggers had a uh, something like a, a 5 to 14 to 1 benefit. You, you invest a dollar and you get 5 to 14 back. He was, was saying that uh, we've tended to deal with asthma as a health care problem. You have children who are having asthma attacks in the home, and they go to the hospital and incur thousands of dollars of, of medical costs, and then we send them back home to the same environment that, that created the attack. And so he made a very persuasive case for uh, looking at improvements in, in air quality in, in homes uh, based on reducing health care costs. His central thesis was that IAQ was contributing, uh, poor IAQ was contributing substantially to our health insurance costs, and that that was something that we could do something about. Another uh, winner, I think, at a high level was something that Chris Pike uh, from USGPC and, and also from a, an organization called Gresby, which is uh, another organization that he's working with now, uh, mentioned in his keynote. and. And that is that in terms of getting people to adopt IAQ improvements, uh, we've had uh, some 
barriers because of the variability of outcomes. So case by case, you find that when you apply prescriptive standards or certain technologies, you get improvement and others you don't. Uh, what his organization, uh, this new organization, Grisby, is doing is, is looking at uh, a portfolio-based approach to IAQ with large property owners, uh, with owners of large portfolios, because we know that a lot of the things that we can do to improve IAQ uh, actually do work out over a large population of buildings, and it's easier to get acceptance on that basis than going case by case. And I thought that was a really uh, important comment to make that gets to the issue of, of getting technology adopted, is I think for IAQ as well as for energy efficiency, most of us who are in those businesses feel like there's not the uptake that we should have based on the uh, return on investment that can be pretty reliably demonstrated. So th those are a couple of uh, uh, positive things. On the, the things that don't work so well, uh, we heard again at this conference from those who uh, try to uh, measure IQ in buildings that uh, sampling by itself is uh, not as effective as uh, some think it is, that different sampling techniques produce different results and that there's not uh, always the, the correlation between a measured concentration of something in the air and the health outcomes for the occupants of the building. So there's a, a need for a real uh, expert investigation when there's a problem. And I think that is, is perhaps something that supports the notion of what uh, IAQA does, which is to, to, to go into buildings and solve problems. If it was just a matter of measuring something and then reducing a concentration, then maybe we wouldn't need to have experts. Hmm. I think that going back to the working in kind of chunks of buildings, that, that is an interesting uh, interesting thought. I mean, I th when I think of working in chunks of buildings, I think about schools and and schools that mm -hmm. our children go to. Was there any talk about that at the conference? Uh, I believe that we had some papers about schools, but I, I don't have any specific uh, things to cite in in that regard. But of course, that's a uh, a good place to, to apply these ideas. Um, I was going to mention also that weatherization was another thing that was cited as, as uh, bringing some uh, IAQ benefits along with it, controlling unintentional air leakage and moisture problems in buildings. That was, was also pointed out by uh, Paul Francisco, who's one of our uh, IAQ-involved uh, residential experts. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So they find that weatherization in in some cases can help improve indoor air quality. Yes, yeah, there, there have been investigations done. Actually, I just saw something that Shelley Miller from Colorado tweeted about uh, a day or two ago that, that there have been some studies of, of uh, IAQ in weatherized buildings that, that show that it uh, tends to be uh, good or better than in unweatherized, and I, I assume that that's because of uh, impacts on um, moisture and, uh, and on um, upper contaminants coming in. That's interesting, because we see, sometimes we see reports of the opposite, you know, how weatherization can at times cause problems, but that's interesting. I'm going to have to t see if we can't get Paul on or, or Shelly. Well, Shelly didn't do the, she just tweeted about the study. She didn't do the study, I guess. Uh, she may have been involved. I can't. I can't recall. It was just something that kind of <laughs> flew by yesterday. Okay. But uh, certainly, if, if you're going to tighten buildings, as everyone knows, you have to start paying more attention to to ventilation, and we should also be paying attention to, to sources. And the more I look at the problem, the more I think that uh, starting with with really reducing emissions indoors as much as we can is is one of the most important things to do. You know, it, you bring up a good point, and and actually, in the United States, at least according to someone I, I had in a class recently, I had a guy come over from China. He didn't care about dampness. He didn't care about allergens. 
his concern was chemical off-gassing. And um, his point was that we have, we've done a much better job here in the States than they have in China, and that the middle class over there is very concerned about chemical off-gassing and, of course, particulate because of the huge um, amount of particulate in the outdoor air coming into their building. So they kind of look at it a little differently, I think, than a lot of the people I deal with here in the States. And, and you travel around the world a lot. Has that been your experience, too? Uh, well, certainly, you know, to the extent that you don't have uh, good standards for material emissions, and China is one of the places where that's been a problem, then you have to be concerned about uh, about VOCs and formaldehyde, particularly indoors. I, I think the big problem, and, and this is maybe another one I should have mentioned, is a as a uh, uh, something that works is control of the PM indoors. We've, I think most of us have probably seen or heard of the World Health Organization studies on, on uh, excess mortality from, from PM. Uh, lowering PM levels indoors, I think, is something that everyone should be thinking about doing, and it raises huge questions in developing economies about how we're going to deal with uh, uh, a ventilation-based IAQ approach and with uh, naturally ventilated uh, buildings. Um, so they're using natural ventilation widely because they can't afford the energy cost of air conditioning buildings the way we might do it in the U.S. or in Europe, but then they're bringing in outdoor air from, from Beijing or New Delhi or some other city that has very high uh, outdoor particulate levels. And, and I think that's a a significant health concern and ought to drive us in the direction of looking at other kinds of solutions that require less outdoor air. Yeah, you you make me think of the article that was, um, I think it was on the cover of the Ashray Journal last month, where um, I want to say it was Jeff Siegel and a couple other authors, and they were talking about the amount of filtration that you would need in different parts of the world to get below World Health Organization PM uh, recommendations for indoor air. It was a very interesting, and, and I thought a very useful article, one that, you know, a lot of times you see the articles in ASHRAE Journal or wherever where it's, you know, it's nice, good information, but this one you could put right to work. I mean, it had recommendations for MERV uh, ratings for many, many different cities around the world. Are, are you familiar with that? Did you get a chance to see that one yet? I haven't seen that article yet, but I, I want to mention a related one. There was a paper that was published by a group. I think the first author was Montgomery, uh, I think from the University of British Columbia, and they got uh, economic parameters and outdoor PM levels for cities around the world, from Vancouver, which was probably the, the lowest PM, to uh, they went to, to New Delhi or Beijing, and they uh, looked at the... Uh, the costs and the health benefits, morbidity and mortality, uh, in all of those locations for uh, like MERV 1 through 16 filters. So you can can see the benefits going up as they're getting more and more of a, a fine PM. And, and they uh, calculated for all of those locations a, an annual per-person benefit from uh, using a filter of a certain MERV value. I think that's also a very practically applicable uh, paper. I'd be happy to pass along the citation on that for inclusion in the, the blog if you'd like to, to do that. That would be great. We'd appreciate that, Bill. All right, we're going to break for our halftime here, and then when we come back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Bill Bonfleth, we're going to talk a little bit about ultraviolet uh, on coils. Uh, we, we I, you got a couple papers I want to talk about with uh, using UV on coils, a very interesting topic. So we'll be back in about 90 seconds with our guest, Bill Bonfleth. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. 
Thanks.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we are back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Bill Bonfleth on the line here. And Cliff, before we uh, go into the UV articles, was there anything you wanted to add or any any questions you had from the first half? No, I'm chomping at the bit to get into the UV stuff. Okay, all right. Well, let's do that then. Um, I, I, I sent you an article on these um, UV robots in in hospitals, Bill, that um, they're using to disinfect rooms after, uh, in this case, I think it was in a, a cancer treatment area that was, you know, pretty high-risk area, and they, they found they were doing a pretty good job of um, lowering infections. And, and I, you're dealing, though, with more... Uh, now, I think you've de- dealt with all types of UV, but um, right now, I think the focus has been on coils, and how UVs help, uh, or, or you're, you're trying to find out if they help with coil and, and with uh, biofilm on coils. So I've got two papers here. First, I wonder if you had any comment on that, on that uh, robot in the hospital thing that I sent you. Uh, yeah, so that was an example of a study on uh, uh, a room disinfection unit that would, would disinfect surfaces uh, when the room was unoccupied because it would be producing the UV intensity that wouldn't be good to expose people to. And, and those have been uh, uh, developed and, and marketed, I, marketed, I would say, for, for probably close to a decade now. And there have been uh, quite a few studies of how effective they are at controlling uh, uh, pathogens associated with, with the hospital-acquired infections. Uh, I think the one that you mentioned said that it was it was uh, effective for, for C. diff, but not MRSA. Did I get yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of studies focusing on C. diff, but I've also seen some others that, that say that there was also substantial reduction of, of MRSA and, and others as well. And the question is why in a particular case you might not see uh, a difference. And, of course, I haven't had time to dig into the background a, a great deal, but you can, can imagine some reasons why that might happen. Uh, in one case, some of the studies tend to look at simply at differences in exposure and not at differences in outcomes. So if I'm doing a, an experiment and, and my metric is what is the, the density of, of the microorganisms on the surface, that gives me one result. And if what I'm measuring is a control area and a treated area and what is the incidence of, of infections in those areas, that may be something else. So the potential there is for there be a, to be a difference that's due to a difference in the primary mode of transmission. If you have something that is, is transmitted primarily by direct physical contact as opposed to an airborne route, then you might actually be re- reducing concentrations effectively on surfaces, but not having the same impact on, uh, on the clinical outcome. And, and the other possibility that comes to mind is that there's a significant difference in UV susceptibility of, 
different micro microorganisms, which may be true as well, but I, I didn't uh, check to see whether there were accepted uh, K values for, for C. diff and MRSA and whether they were very different. Uh, but so it's, it's an area that's still developing. Uh, there was a, a paper that looked at UV generally uh, in, in medical applications a few years ago that, that I, I think used the, the, the terminology not ready for prime time as the primary way of, of preventing infections, but a useful uh, adjunct. So I think we've seen that these uh, sorts of uh, robots or similar pieces of equipment uh, do uh, apparently work in, in these applications, but you can't rely on them completely as an alternative to other kinds of, of surface disinfection and other infection control mechanisms. And in this case, it was in addition to their regular cleaning that they would do in that room anyway. And mm -hmm. they, they said it took an, an extra five minutes, which, you know, I, I don't, although I'm curious, do you happen to know how much one of those robots would cost? Any ballpark idea? Oh, they've been all, all over the map, but it could be tens of thousands of dollars depending on the uh, uh, manufacturer okay. uh, and, and how much technology they put in them. But they, they, so they have a lot of lamps, which is not all that expensive, but they're, they're portable and generally come with some kind of an automatic control system uh, so that uh, you can set a desired dose and there will be UV sensors on the device and they will be measuring what's bouncing back off of the surroundings and, and decide when they've been on long enough, long enough and shut themselves off. So that technology, I think, adds some cost to them, but it's a useful feature. Yeah, Cliff said they, there's about $100,000 for some of those robots. But let's, let's talk a little bit about disinfection performance of an ultraviolet coil irradiation system in a hot and humid climate. This is a paper that... Um, you sent me, and I, I got a chance to look at, at a little bit of it, and um, I'm curious before we start on that, is this an area of uh, focus for you because you see um, good promise in this area? You know, we're, you know, UV can be used in just in a room in general, like the robots or the, the ones that are up high, um, or it can be used in, in duct work or any number of applications, but it seems like you've got a couple papers here with respect to coils. Do you see that as a, um, an area that, that might have some, some good applications? Yeah, well, it's uh, one of the, the most popular and well-accepted applications of, of UV and HVAC systems to control uh, biological growth on cooling coils uh, as a, an alternative to conventional maintenance. So you use UV on the coil and it, it reduces the, uh, the biological growth and the uh, theory is that it will reduce the pressure drop through the coil and that will also increase the heat transfer coefficient and that that will yield uh, performance benefits. So that, that's been claimed and these systems have been uh, installed and operated for years, but until probably the last two years, there wasn't, uh, to my knowledge, a single independent peer-reviewed study of how they actually uh, performed that could be replicated and that was reported in a, in a journal. There were uh, manufacturers' claims in the promotional literature, and there were some interesting but, uh, uh, to some extent, flawed trade magazine articles. What we tried to do was to to go out and take measurements that uh, were as accurate as we could make them and, and uh, to, to get a, a more reliable estimate of what the impact of these systems would be. And I'm, I'm not promoting it or discouraging it. Our, our goal as researchers was simply to, to try to provide some uh, credible data as to what actually happened. So. We've been doing a project here in the U.S. where we instrumented two systems, one at Penn State and one at a, at a university in Florida, quite different climates, and have been collaborating with uh, a group at National University of Singapore, uh, and they've instrumented several systems there as well. So this paper is reporting data from uh, systems in, in Singapore. Okay. And maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about what you looked at and then and what you found i mean i 
I could read some of this, but I think it's better coming from you. Sure. Well, the, um, the, the primary intent of these projects was to take energy use-related data, uh, pressure drop and heat transfer coefficient-related data, so we could figure out whether there was actually going to be an economic benefit. And uh, we did that, but in, in parallel with it, in Singapore, uh, they did some sampling to uh, test to what extent the microbial populations on the coil were affected by UV exposure. And when you, you look at the uh, results of, of this particular study, they, they found that there was some improvement uh, simply reporting that there were, were reductions in what was measured on the coil, but uh, didn't really go beyond that to do air sampling that would indicate whether there was a significant reduction in, uh, in airborne microorganisms that might have a health effect. So this was sort of a, uh, uh, an appendix to a study that was mainly focused on um, energy issues. I, I would say there's a there's a much uh, more detailed and, and rigorous study of the effect of UV on, on microorganisms on coils. It was done in the laboratory at Colorado uh, recently. Again, that was was Shelley Miller and one of her students, and that's been published. So this really confirms what has been in other papers that have been seen in the literature that when you put UV in a, an air handling unit to alleviate the coil, that it does clean up the condensate pan, it does reduce uh, biological growth on the coil and on other surfaces in the air handling unit. But, uh, we were more primarily interested in does it uh, create energy savings and what is the overall economic benefit of it? Because from my point of view, trying to get good IAT technology into buildings, uh, I think monetizing it in a way that's credible is, is one of the most important things we can do. Absolutely. Uh, and so you, you, you have found that the UV lights can help with both the energy and, to some degree, the, the, the biological contamination on these coils. Uh, I'm wondering about the placement of the UV lights because you, I guess you've got to get that you know light hitting the surfaces um, how many lights are we looking at to be effective and, and, and what type of uh, configuration is most effective? I mean, I see people do everything from just drill a hole and put a bulb in the return air side to, you know, much more elaborate configurations. Yeah, well, a relatively small number of lamps, of course, it depends on the type of lamp and the uh, uh, the power the size of the system, but if it's small, the, the amount of power consumed by the lamps is, is minuscule, doesn't really uh, contribute anything to, to heating. In terms of, of placement, uh, downstream has been preferred by most in the industry because uh, that's the wettest part of the coil and you also are able to irradiate the, uh, the condensate pan on the downstream side. So that's been the argument for doing it that way, and, and manufacturers will say that, that you get good penetration of, of light through the, the coil. Um, the other approach, if you put them upstream, normally the air conditions, the temperature velocity combinations on the upstream side of the cooling coil would result in a smaller uh, system re requirement because the lamps would be more efficient. So we, we did another paper study a while ago that showed that it would take twice as much power uh, downstream to do the same job as upstream because of the wind chill related derating of the lamps. Uh, we did look at, at our Tampa uh, site at uh, whether UV was penetrating all the way through a, a six-row coil. And when we started the, the project, there was, you couldn't see the lamps at all from the backside or from the upstream side of the coil. But by the time we had been irradiated in the coil for, for a month, we could at least get a, a dim glow through the, the back of the coil. So there was an increase in penetration and some uh, radiation apparently coming all the way through. But I think that's something that, that ought to be studied in more detail. We just have one anecdotal data point from, from the study that, that we did. But we did get a good result. You know, the, 
didn't ask yet about the the energy uh, results, but what we found in in both the the Tampa site uh, in Florida that that we studied and then the sites in Singapore was something approaching 20% decrease in in pressure drop through the coil and and something around 15% increase in uh, heat transfer coefficient. So Hmm. it actually does work, and those numbers sound fairly impressive, but uh, maybe the uh, somewhat negative result of of the study was that when you turn that into how much money do we save in a year, it was fairly fairly small, but still cost justifiable. And has there been uh, have you looked at or anyone looked at? On uh, well, let me first ask: are, are most of this work? It sounds like they were on existing systems that had already been in use. Um, has there also been work on comparing? Uh, new systems where one has the UV on the coils and the other doesn't, and and how quickly things get dirty as opposed to you know with with the one that doesn't have it compared to the one that does. Anything like that being done? Uh, the only study that I'm aware of that that has tried to do that was um, the laboratory investigation that was done at University of, of Colorado, and they put in two brand new coils. And uh, one had UV on it, and the other one did not. And uh, they were able to show that there was some fouling going on, and, and that the UV controlled the uh, uh, the biological growth. But unfortunately, they they didn't develop enough of a a difference between the two coils in the course of that study to really show much of a benefit. Uh, I. Part of that might be related to being a new coil, but part of it, I think, also might be due to the, the experiment having been done in Colorado, which is not the most conducive climate. And I think that's one thing that, that when you put that study together with with ours, where we looked at uh, central Pennsylvania and uh, in Florida and in Singapore, there's definitely a much greater likelihood that a coil irradiation system will be helpful if you're in a hot and humid climate that has a heavy year-round latent load and a wet coil all year than if you're in a place like I'm in here where we have a dry coil for many months during the winter and not the most humid summer either. So there's going to be a range of benefits depending on where you're located. Well, that's interesting. And that's, it. you know, you'd think that makes sense but uh, until you actually look at it you don't you can't say for sure i guess uh cliff do you have any follow-up on go ahead bill oh no i was, I was just agreeing with you okay yeah, yeah joe i do uh hi bill I, i'd like to go back to the ultraviolet and the uh disinfection of the hospital rooms there was a comment that i found in the notes about mode of transmission is not affected by cleaning surfaces, and I was just—I I just didn't understand it. I was just wondering if you could explain it. Well, well, um, I think I, an example I might give is is uh, Ebola virus, uh, not believed to be transmitted by uh, airborne mode, as you may have read in the papers when that was a big issue a, a while ago. It's transmitted by uh, bodily fluids, so you get the patient's blood. Uh, on you or other fluids, and then that creates the case. So you could could have uh, Ebola viruses on surfaces and and uh, inactivate all of them, and it wouldn't change the risk of an Ebola infection at all. It would depend on on how uh, well the, the healthcare providers uh, followed practices for protecting themselves. And so, for a lot of different microorganisms, there's a uh, a range of likelihood of transmission by airborne mode, by uh, fomite transfer, where you would, would have a secondary surface that would participate in the transfer, the, you know, the touching the doorknob or the, the countertop mode, and then touching your own mucous membranes or the, the physical mode of transmission. And I was just suggesting that, that uh, between one HAI and another, you could have some that are highly transmissible by airborne mode and others that are mainly transmissible by, by fomite or, or direct uh, contact. Thank you. All right, let's go to our roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him on, ride him in, ride him in. 
Before we go, I just want to make sure that we get a chance to have you comment on a couple of uh, association-related issues. One is the um, an organization or group that I don't think many listeners are very familiar with. It's called the IEQ Global Alliance, and uh, I wonder if you could tell listeners what that is and what the goal is. Sure. This was something that I uh, tried to get started when I was president of ASHRAE, and it's a an organization of organizations. We were trying to get uh, different uh, organizations together that are concerned about all of the aspects of indoor environmental quality, so uh, thermal environments, indoor air quality, lighting, acoustics, to um, really to identify uh, what needed to be done to stimulate Progress. I think we had the feeling that uh, some areas like energy and uh, environmental protection were getting a lot more attention and support than indoor environmental equality. And one of the obvious reasons for that is that, that we don't have uh, consistent messaging from uh, groups that, that are large enough to have influence. So we thought if we got these groups together, we could... Uh, help to support advocacy, and I, I could see uh, uh, this group uh, contributing to messages that would then be carried by the advocacy uh, staff of the various organizations to, to legislators and other uh, decision makers who could have a positive impact. So that was, was one of the main things that we wanted to do. And on the other side, to communicate with the public. I think that, that we make progress when when the public is well-informed and understands that there are issues, and then that tends to feed into uh, legislators recognizing that there are issues, and then uh, that starts to generate uh, the large programs and the resources to support them. So that was our, our goal, and we're moving slowly in that direction. Uh, we've, we've got support for several more years of operating expenses to have meetings. We're, we're still working on uh, starting to have more productive output, but uh, the group did organize an IAQ standards, global IAQ standards session at the IAQ conference that was uh, very well received and very interesting. Good. And and I'm curious, before we go, if you could give us a little update on how things look, at least from your perspective, with the um, ASHRAE and IAQA, I, I forget what to call it, merger, uh, whatever whatever terminology we're using on that. Consolidation. Yeah. Consolidation, yeah. okay. Uh, sure. Well, I, uh, of course, I am just a member of both organizations and have no uh, leadership role at this point. But my, my view from the outside, having been involved in the initial uh, joining of the two, is that we've made... Uh, Good progress in, in some areas with ironing out some of the uh, 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 management issues, uh, staffing uh, to, to support IAQA and uh, starting to improve things like being able to uh, be a, become a member of both organizations and, and finally coordinating the meetings in the same hotel at the winter meeting in, uh, of ASHRAE and, and the meeting of IAQA in January in Las Vegas. So... That's sort of coming along, and I would also point uh, as a, a big uh, positive that uh, uh, IAQA has been getting out more globally now and opened a, uh, a chapter in India, as was discussed by uh, Stephanie Sears and Don Weeks a few weeks ago, and also there's now a group in Shanghai that uh, Stephanie chartered when she was on her way to an Ashford regional conference in Bangkok a couple of weeks ago. So. We're starting to see some global growth. Where I think we need to, to work is on uh, a true uh, synergistic partnership between ASHRAE and IAQA. That's what I really uh, envisioned when, when we started working on this was that, that we would start to get some crossover between ASHRAE and IAQA that would lead to uh, research projects that ASHRAE might do that would be IAQA uh, relevant and that we would see the IAQ practitioner perspective more reflected in uh, the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee and in programs at ASHRAE meetings. And 
I think uh, that involves a different kind of coordination amongst the members uh, that we haven't uh, pushed far enough yet. But I, I believe leadership understands that. And I know uh, Stephanie has been meeting with members of the ASHRAE board about those very issues. So I'm, I'm looking forward to things going in a positive direction, but uh, everyone, including me, needs to maybe uh, remain patient and calm and uh, and try to do constructive things. And I think in the end, this is going to be very good for both organizations, is those who uh, are concerned about air quality in those organizations. I think that's well said, Bill. Uh, Cliff, anything you'd like to add? Nope, I'm done, Joe. Thank you. Cliff's going to cramp cramped hand. He's been uh, writing notes quite a bit here. <laughs> Uh, before we go, Bill, I, I just want to give you the last shot. Anything that you'd like to add that we missed? Um, you know, we we didn't get into the UV quite as deep as I would have liked, but um, the second paper you had there, I think you did get to at least mention a little bit about the economic, you know, modeling that you had done um, with respect to UVGI for coil cleaning. Anything you wanted to mention on that before we go? Well, on that, I mean, just our, our bottom line for the best case was that uh, uh, UV, uh, instead of, of uh, conventional mechanical coil cleaning, was only 20% as expensive. And, and then if you take the IAQ benefit of the air irradiation that's covered in our other paper that we didn't talk about very much, you actually got a net savings uh, from coil treatment. So the economics of it looked uh, looked reasonably good. And, and I found from talking to those in, in healthcare who are using UV systems that they weren't even as concerned about the energy savings as I was, that they felt that the fact that the coils were maintained much better was actually a life cycle cost benefit because they were going to last longer. So there are some, some positive things that are coming out of this that there's still more to be done. I encourage those who are interested to uh, to look for the papers as they get published. I'm wondering if, if for those that, you know, like myself, I go out, I look at coils, I, I look at drain pans, and, um, you know, I don't run into too many UV systems, but for those of us that are out there doing that, when we do, any tips, precautions that you would give us with respect to better understanding how these uh, should be installed or, or how they should be working or things to look for when we do evaluate a mechanical system with UV lights in it? Um, well, the, of course, a coil irradiation system would be relatively low power and, and located close to the coil. You need to distinguish between whether it's there primarily to disinfect air or it's, it's there mainly to, uh, to treat the coil precautions don't get anywhere near the uh, the lamps when they're operating unless you're wearing a full full protective clothing because it doesn't take you know, but a few seconds to start getting a sunburn from from those systems um, as far as knowing whether they're working properly it's important to find out if the lamps are being changed regularly because um, they will continue to glow and look like they're working after they've experienced major loss in uh, in UV output. So making sure that lamps are clean and replaced probably uh, at least once a, a year is a, uh, an important uh, maintenance item. And for the guys doing the maintenance, who we also get listeners who do that, um, what about the disposal on, on the on the used bulbs? Is that, is that handled? Uh, There's special precautions that need to be taken there? Is there special disposal requirements? Yeah. Well, keep in mind that a a UV, a germicidal lamp is, is essentially a fluorescent lamp. So whatever disposal procedure you would use for a, uh, an ordinary uh, uh, fluorescent illumination lamp, you would do the same thing with a, a germicidal lamp because they contain the same material, mercury vapor or amalgam. All right. Well... If, unless there's anything you'd like to add, I think that was a, a great finish for the show. I, I love when we get a couple good practical tips for the practitioners out there. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. We, we really appreciate it. Anything before we go? Well, I think my, my parting shot would be just to go back to the conference. and I, My feeling is that we're at a point where there's starting to be an awareness of IAQ at a high level 
And if we push to start turning science into into practically usable information, we may be able to make some real progress over the next few years. And I hope that all the listeners who are associated with organizations and involved in advocacy will uh, take that to heart and, and uh, uh, think about what they can do and, and uh, coordinate with other organizations like ASHRAE and IAQA that are taking an active role in that. And maybe some of them could just hang in there a little longer because it's been a tough, uh, tough ten years or so here for the people in the industry. You know, the, when things get tough and uh, you know economics are tight, a lot of times uh, these kind of things can be put on the back burner. So you're seeing a lot more interest in the in the upper levels now. Uh, certainly, people are talking about it, and that's a good first step. Absolutely. And and it's great to talk to you today, Bill, and, and we really appreciate you joining us again and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. It's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. All right. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Bill Bonfleth. Another great show. To my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff, nice job. Uh, got a lot of uh, notes, I'm sure, today. And uh, to my engineer, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and downloads are coming along real nice. Great to have everybody checking in. Next week, we're going to be taking the week off because Cliff and I will be at the IEQ Mold and Disaster Restoration Conference at Seven Springs Resort, October 2021, 2016. You can go to iaqtraining.com for more information on that. But uh, we'll be back in two weeks with the show with Bill Fisk. Um, Looking forward to that. Until then, everybody have a great evening and come back in two Fridays from now for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.